All right, if you're having a seat, you can turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. And uh, let me remind you again, Prime Conference is going to be February 1st and 2nd. Uh, you may notice that we, um, we talk once in a while about discipleship because that's the mission of the church, right? That's, that's why we're here. Uh, and we even gather here in these moments so that we can be better equipped and more motivated to fulfill our mission to make disciples. So if you haven't signed up for that, let me encourage you to do so. All right, Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and as we begin, I wanted to share with you some uh, wisdom about uh, relationships and dating and marriage that I, uh, I came across several years ago. And I, I've shared some of this before. Some of it will be uh, new to uh, some of you. Some you may have heard it before, but I feel like we can always use a refresher on wisdom regarding relationships. Uh, and in particular, th- this wisdom comes all from children between the ages of 5 and 10. Okay? So... Concerning why love happens between two particular people, Harlan, age eight, wrote, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest isn't supposed to be quite so painful. (laughs) On on what falling in love is like, Roger, age nine, said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. (laughs) Leo added, if falling in love is anything like learning to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. (laughs) Bobby, age eight, he said, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was fine, but the gr- five, but the girls keep finding me. That was good. All right, on the role of good looks in love, Christine, age nine, said, Beauty is skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. <laughs> Carrie, age seven, added, It isn't always just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't even gotten married yet. <laughs> what do most people do on a first date? On a first date, Mike, age nine, says, They just tell each other lies. And that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. <laughs> too, too painfully true, right? Okay. Great debate. Is it better to be single or married? Lynette, age nine, she says, It is better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need somebody to clean up after them. <laughs> How can you tell if two adults eating dinner at a restaurant are in love? Christine, again, age nine, she said, It's love if they order one of those desserts that are on fire. Brad, age eight, he said, people in love will just be staring at each other and their food will get cold. Other people care more about the food. (laughs) So how do you make love endure? It's the last one. Randy, age eight, he said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a little wisdom to get you started. A little little levity, actually, because we're going to talk about a kind of a a heavy topic. So I thought we should start a little bit light. We're going to talk about marriage and uh, divorce. And uh, for probably all of us, we've been touched by this in one way or the other. You may have uh, been a part of a divorce, or maybe your parents were divorced and it and affected your life, or you have friends. I, I feel confident in saying most likely 100% of us have been affected in some close relationship uh, by divorce. And, and so we know marriage matters. Right? Marriage matters to us. Marriage matters to God. And so God speaks to these most uh, sensitive areas of our lives. So we're going to look at at marriage and divorce in the book of Malachi, and then we're going to turn to one of the important passages from Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. But we're beginning in Malachi. So I want you to read with me Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. Malachi writes, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? So why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakens and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is yet another thing that you do. You cover your altar, cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groanings, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of sound judgment. And what did that one do while he was seeking godly offspring? Take no heed then to your spirit, take no... Take heed then to your spirit or to your wisdom, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now, there were two major uh, social, spiritual issues going on in the day. There were probably more, but there were two primary ones that Malachi addressed, and they were marriage of a believer to an unbeliever, and then divorce without biblical justification. So marriage of a believer to an unbeliever, it helps once again to get ourselves back in the context. What's probably happening here is that you have intermarriage between Jewish men and foreign women. And the issue is not interracial marriages. That's not the problem. In fact, if you look throughout the Bible, there are interracial marriages throughout the Bible. Um, Moses was married to a woman who was a Midianite, Zephora. His, his wife was not Jewish. In, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there are actually three non-Jewish women. Remember, there was Rahab. She was a Canaanite. Uh, Ruth was a, a Moabitess. Tamar was uh, a Canaanite also. So you have at least three women, even in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who are not Jewish. So interracial marriage wasn't the issue. The issue was religious, not racial. So these women that the Jewish men were, were marrying were outside of the faith, and they were bringing their idolatrous practices into the home. If you notice in chapter 2, the end of verse 11, it says, Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. So apparently what's happening here is that uh, not that the Jews themselves were getting back into idolatry, but their families were being infiltrated by idolatry. Uh, listen to these words in Nehemiah chapter 13. It says, uh, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Am- Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. That is, none of them spoke Hebrew. So, agrarian society, the men would go out into the field. Some of them would be in commercial interests, but they would leave the home all day or for days and weeks on end. And while they were gone, their foreign wives were raising the children, and they didn't even speak the language. So they couldn't speak Hebrew, they couldn't read the Hebrew Scripture, and they introduced them to foreign gods. And Malachi says that's, that's treachery. Literally, it's, it's unfaithfulness. He uses the word unfaithfulness, which is always uh, inserted in a marriage context to describe this in terms of our relationship with God. Because throughout Scripture, God regards himself as the husband, and we, humanity, his followers, are the bride. Or he's the father and we're the children, but it's always in family terms. In other words, to bring in idolatry into the family, he says, that's, that's treachery. Why? Because the first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. You won't make idols, you won't worship them. Instead, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you are jeopardizing the next generation. They won't love me because they don't even know about me. They can't even speak the language of the scripture that I've given you any longer. You're breaking faith with me. 
So apparently that's what's happening here in context. So how do we apply it in our setting today? Well, I would say the simplest way for us to apply it is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't marry someone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And I use the ESV translation here because it best captures the metaphor, do not be unequally yoked. Paul's using this metaphor of two oxen that are plowing the field, and in a sense one's tall and one's short, one's strong and one's weak, and so they're, they're always fighting in a sense against one another. They're not pulling the same direction. And in the context of marriage, the center, the foundation is, are you both following Jesus? Do you both worship the Lord? And if not, you're going to be pulling and tugging in different directions on one another. So if the biblical application is, do not marry someone who's not following Jesus Christ, then those of you who are single, you might apply this and say, therefore I should not... This is a responsive moment. If you shouldn't marry someone who's not following the Lord, then you shouldn't... Hey, wow, brilliant. That's really good. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, years ago when Tristan and I were doing student ministry, we, we did uh, we do retreats on uh, dating. And I wanted to name the, our, our, uh, our talks um, Waiting, Dating, and Mating. <laughs> but she said, no, don't ever say that in public. But, I, you know, I just did. Cause... But one of the points we would make was, was this. Because uh, dating sometimes leads to... Here, dating sometimes leads to marriage. Yeah, right. It, it just kind of works that way, right? Sometimes dating leads to marriage. So if, if you, we should not be unequally yoked in marriage, then maybe not date. And it was interesting, whenever we would kind of lay that out, uh, I always got objections. So let me tell you some of the objections that, uh, that we received on this. The first was this. Um, but I can lead him or I can lead her to Christ. God's called me. He or she doesn't know Jesus, and so I can, I can lead this person to Christ in the context of dating. And my answer to that is uh, maybe, maybe not, but really not because you don't lead anybody to Christ. Right? God does that. It's, it's a, that's the sovereignty of God, and he includes us in the process of evangelism, but romantic relationships are not designed for evangelism. That's not the purpose of romantic relationships. Right? It, it might happen that God uses you, but you know what? Not in that context. And since God is sovereign in the process of leading people to himself, you might want to just say, let me trust God to do that without me. Without me. Another objection we would hear is, uh, you know, we're just hanging out. We're just having fun. I'm not, not going to marry him. I'm not going to marry her. I go, ooh, boop, 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 danger, danger, danger. Um, because what has happened so many times that I've seen is, is you open your heart up. And once you, you give your heart away, all reason and rationality is gone. Right? You can't say, well, we're just going to spend a lot of time together, but I know I will not fall in love. You're asking for danger. Another one we would hear is this. Uh, I'm afraid no one else will love me and marry me. Uh, this might be my last chance. I'm, I'm getting older, like 22. <laughs> so... Uh, I get that, right? I didn't uh, get married until I was almost 31 and Trish was 27 and that wasn't how we expected life to go on. But remember, it's, 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 it's waiting, dating and mating, right? Waiting first. And waiting is one of God's primary sanctifying tools. 
not just in, in this area of life, but really in all areas of life, we learn to wait and we learn to trust. And it, it might be that you wait a long time. You might have to wait till like 31. You might wait till 40. I've had a friend who got married at 50. Or you might not get married. But my word of encouragement and advice would be, wait, trust, trust God in this area of life. It's the most sensitive area, I think, possibly, uh, of all. Um, but it's probably better to be uh, single and, and lonely than married and lonely. Okay. Probably better to be single and lonely than married and lonely. Because what's most important is that you're following Jesus in this area of your life. And you know what? He can surround you with, with really rich and full relationships. He can. He can. But you have to wait on him and you have to trust him. Second thing I would like to note, though, is if you uh, are married to an, a person who's not following Jesus, stay in it. Okay, Stay in it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, uh, you know, before you've made the choice, we'll make a choice to, to marry someone who is following Jesus. But if you're already in a, a marriage and your spouse does not follow Jesus, stay in it. Be loyal. You've made that commitment. Love that person. It, it may be that the Lord allows you to lead that person in a relationship with him. It, it might happen, it might not happen, but your calling is to stay loyal to your marriage and to display Jesus Christ in, in unconditional and loyal love to that person. So, so stay there. All right, so first issue was this, marriage of a believer to an unbeliever. Second issue was divorce without biblical justification. Look with me again, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, this is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So again, context, apparently what's happening is that these Jewish men are divorcing their first wives but without biblical cause. And we'll talk about what biblical cause for divorce is in just a moment when we get into the book of Matthew. Um, But apparently what's motivating these divorces is these men were divorcing their Jewish wives so that they could marry the foreign wives. Why? We don't know exactly. It may be that they were just more exotic and alluring, or it may have been that there was a family uh, covenant that could be made that would provide some financial security, or maybe they were just bored. We just don't know. But they were breaking that first covenant to go into marriages with these foreign wives. And Malachi is saying, look, you don't have biblical justification for that. And what's the result? Verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groanings, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, you're still going through the motion of worship, but you have this unconfessed sin that you haven't dealt with. And sin always creates a barrier between us and God. Sin creates a barrier. That's why the gospel is necessary. Because we're born as people who rebel against God's authority in our lives. So we're born separated because sin creates a barrier. So why did Jesus Christ come? To remove the barrier, to remove the debt of sin. And the moment that we believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that barrier of sin is removed forever. We have life forever with God. And all that you have to do to receive that is just say, yes, God, I believe. But then having entered into the family of God, having God now as your father or God as your husband, being in this this family relationship with God, even sometimes within family, we wound 
one another, right? And so when we sin, even as believers, we can't lose our relationship with God because he is faithful, right? He holds on to us. But we can damage it, we can create distance, we can create separation. So as believers, we're continually in a process of saying, God, you're right about that sin, I confess. And if we don't do that, then there becomes distance in the relationship with the Lord, lack of intimacy. And he says, look, you're still going through the motions and you're bringing all your offerings, but there's distance between us. I'm not enjoying our our fellowship because you haven't owned the sin. And it may be right now, this morning in your life, there's a sin you just need to confess before the Lord. It may be in regard to your your marriage now, or a previous marriage, or a friendship with a family member, or a a roommate, or it could be any any area of your life that the Spirit has been poking on it and prodding and saying, acknowledge it, own it, and you need to just have a moment right now when you confess. So that the joy and the intimacy of the relationship can can be restored. And the problem in this day is that they weren't owning this particular sin. So they keep bringing their offerings, and God says, why? Why? Confession means, literally, to say the same thing. Homologeo, to say the same thing. God says that's sin. And they're saying, no, it's not. So when the Spirit of God comes in, he convicts. Confess it quickly. Right? Remove the barrier of sin. Now, how do we apply this principle to our lives? Uh, I'm going to say, I want to lay out uh, a few just general principles about uh, marriage and divorce, acknowledging that um, I've had many cases come come into my life, into my my office of of marriages that are struggling, and uh, there's always specific circumstances, right? The Bible doesn't address each and every specific circumstance of a marriage that's struggling, but it does lay out principles, and then wisdom requires us to figure out how do we apply those principles. So this morning, what I'm going to do, I can't speak to each and every situation. I'm just going to lay out some principles for us. Right? The first is this. Divorce is never commanded, but it is permitted. Right? Divorce is not commanded, but it is permitted. So if you would, turn back to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew 19 1 Corinthians 7 are probably the two most important New Testament passages on uh, divorce and marriage. So Matthew chapter 19, let's read in verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Notice that Jesus shifts the argument. He says the issue is not that God commanded you to divorce. God permits divorce. Now, what's going on here is that there was an argument between two rabbinical schools going on in Jesus' day. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And they were arguing over the interpretation of one particular phrase in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 says, 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and then it goes on with other stipulations about divorce. But the debated phrase is this, some indecency in her. And they were arguing over the meaning of this phrase. So the school of Shammai said this, said this the indecent matter means divorce for adultery. The school of Hillel said it means indecency or another matter. In other words, divorce for any matter at all. Right. So when Jesus... Uh, is confronted here, verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, and you could put quotes around this, any reason, okay, quote unquote, any reason at all. The school of Hillel said you can give someone an any reason at all divorce. Right? It's like our, our no fault, no cause divorce. You don't have to put anything on the divorce certificate. It could be because you don't like her cooking. You don't like the way she did her hair. You don't like the way she cleans the house. She's not pretty enough for you any longer. You don't even have to write anything on the divorce certificate. Now, interestingly, this is probably the kind of divorce certificate that Joseph was trying to give to Mary. He didn't want to bring shame on her, so he didn't want to write anything on the divorce certificate. He wanted to give her a no-reason divorce. Not surprisingly, the school of Hillel was more popular than the school of Shammai. Because people wanted to be able to get out for any reason whatsoever. And so the Pharisees are bringing this debate in front of Jesus, right? Because they're always trying to make him pick a side and trip him up and whatever. And often he just finds this incredibly clever middle road. And they're like, whoa, we weren't expecting that, right? This time what he does is he says, he says, uh, Shemai's right. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 is about adultery. It's about adultery. He picks a side and he says, that's the correct interpretation. So, what were the legitimate causes for divorce? Uh, Adultery. That is physical. It was physical immorality. That's what the indecency related to. Marital unfaithfulness. Now, what's interesting, though, is there were other permitted reasons for divorce. They just weren't discussed at this point in time because the argument was about Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Universally, it was agreed upon that abandonment was a legitimate cause for divorce. Why? Because A woman needed provision. And if her family couldn't provide for her and her husband divorced her, there were very few job opportunities. If she had no children, there was no way she could provide for herself. But if she was given a legitimate certificate of divorce, then she could go out and demonstrate that she could be married again and be provided for by a husband. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is addressing the issue of abandonment, which was universally agreed upon. If you've put a woman in a life-threatening situation where she cannot provide herself, the husband has walked away and left her, that is a legitimate grounds for her to be divorced. The other that was universally agreed upon was abuse or endangerment. Because it was criminal. It was criminal. And so if a spouse was was being physically endangered by abandonment, abandonment or by abuse or endangerment, then they were given uh, legitimate grounds for divorce. Right? Now, first principle is this. Divorce is never commanded, but it is permitted. So sometimes, uh, even in cases of adultery or abandonment, you might find reconciliation. Right? You, you're free, biblically, to divorce. You're also free to try to reconcile. You're free to do either. And I have seen cases with adultery or abandonment uh, where there's been incredible 
uh, reconciliation. I've also seen cases where it just can't be put back together. But you're free, biblically, to do either. You're not commanded to divorce, but you are given freedom to divorce. But if you can pursue reconciliation, man, go for it. Try, wait. Um, I've even seen couples get divorced and get remarried. Right down that hallway, I have conducted a wedding ceremony. A couple, the the wife had had multiple affairs. She had left her husband. They'd been uh, uh, separated for five years. Uh, She filled out all the paperwork. He never signed anything. He refused to. After five years, they worked and they worked. They made a couple failed attempts, and then they were able to reconcile. They came to my office, and they said, "Um, God's done a really beautiful thing, and it's miraculous, and, and we want to get married again. And um, you know, and our pastor won't do the, the wedding because we were divorced. And like, <laughs> come on, man, right now, when? I would love to help you with that. And they said, well, we have our, our wedding license in the car. I said, get it. Let's go. And we did a wedding right there. It was a very, very short wedding. <laughs> right? But we talked about this incredible process of forgiveness. Sometimes it can happen. There can be forgiveness and reconciliation. Also, sometimes it just gets broken beyond the point of repair. And so... Jesus says that's why Moses permitted it, right? Moses permitted it. Second principle, divorce is not the final word. It's not the final word on your life. There's not a scarlet D anywhere in the Bible. It may be that you caused a divorce or you were a contributing factor or you were simply a victim of divorce. You know what? God in his grace is more powerful than divorce. More powerful. It may be that you're in a family where your parents got divorced it, it doesn't define all of your life. You can move on and you can have a rich and full and satisfying and impactful life. Whether you get married again or you don't get married again, this is not the final word. I will say, relationally, it creates such a deep wound that sometimes that's how it feels, but it's not. That's Satan's lie. All that Jesus is about is about healing and restoration. Whether that's in your marriage itself or in your life personally on your own or you get remarried, this is what God does. Divorce is not the final word. Third, if you're married, fight for your marriage. Okay, you may be in a really difficult and challenging marriage right now, and I want to say to you, man, fight for it. Right? Fight for it. Uh, I can't say to you, how long should you fight for it? I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to say fight for it. Uh, again, it may be that if you're willing to fight and wait, you might see one of these beautiful and miraculous restorations. It might not. It might be that you fight for it and it just takes time for God to clear your conscience so you feel like, I'm, I'm released now. But, fight for it. Challenge it. Some people have come to me and they've said, you know, we're only staying together for the kids. And I say, way to go. Okay? If that's all you've got right now, maybe that buys you the time to learn to love one another again. But, if you get to the point that you can't wait any longer and you get divorced, you have have freedom in that, right? And divorce is not the final word. But fight for it because it matters, right? Marriage matters, and I want to give you uh, two reasons, because it's it's hard to fight for it, and I realize that. So I want to give you two big reasons why we should value marriage and fight for marriage, particularly in the church. The first is this. Marriage is the most vivid model of Christ's love. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, I want you to love your wives like Christ loved the church. 
How did Christ love the church? To the point of death, right? There was nothing that Jesus wouldn't hold back for his bride, the church. And so, husbands, when you love your wives like that, and you realize marriage is not ultimately about me, I hope that I get lots of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, but ultimately it's about me showing the the kind of love toward my wife that people look in and they go, wow, that must be how God loves us. That's so different. That's not a human kind of love that anyone could do, right? That's how we display it. And that's really, husbands, that's that's the transcendent value. Men, young men who are not married, that's the transcendent value. Why you get married is so you can display Jesus Christ's love for humanity through your marriage. Wives, as you honor and respect your husband, you're also following Jesus, Jesus was not excited about going to the cross. In fact, he said, Father, if there's any other way that you can get your work done, that's what I want, yet not my will but yours be done. And so because he loved his father and respected his father and he loved us who are lost, he turned over his own will and he said, not my will but yours be done so that we could have life. And so, husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, you honor and respect your your husband as Jesus honored and respected his father and gave his life on our behalf. Both of us are demonstrating the very love of God for humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. So when I do a wedding ceremony, that's what I talk about. I say, man, I I anticipate that your marriage is going to be really wonderful and joyful. Mine is. I, I love marriage, but ultimately, it's not about you. Ultimately, God has allowed you two to come together so that people can see the most vivid picture of the way that God loves humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, and that's in marriage. It's an incredible gift. So, church, we of all people should say, this is a really valuable thing, and we should fight for our own marriages. We should help our friends fight for their marriages. If you're single, you should be talking to your friends about the kinds of people they date so that they can have a marriage that honors and glorifies God for their entire lives. We should value it. Second reason is this. Marriage is the foundational institution of a healthy society. It's the first institution God created. Genesis chapter 2, he said, i got one man here and one woman here. I've got male and I've got female. And you two are going to come together and you are going to become one flesh. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way, the one flesh is one family. You are going to become a family. And so Jesus would say, what God therefore has brought together and let no man separate. Why? Because this is the most important institution for a healthy society. It's more important than government. Local, national, or state government, it's more important than government. It's more important than uh, your uh, HOA. It's more important than your home church group. It's more important even than the Association of Former Students. I mean, it's, 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 really, really, it's really important because if marriages are healthy in a society, you know what? The society will be healthy. And where there are pockets of a society where marriages are not healthy, you know what, that subculture is not healthy. And you see greater disease and greater crime, and you actually end up seeing greater divorce because divorce seems to perpetuate divorce. There was a study uh, out years ago by, um, it's called the Rutgers uh, National Marriage Project at Rutgers University, so a non-Christian marriage think tank. And what they discovered was that two adults from divorced homes Husbands have been from a divorce home, wives from a divorce home. When they get married, they're three times more likely to get divorced. Because divorce perpetuates divorce. Now, that's just a statistic. That's a data point. And you're not a data point. You're just a person. So if you come from a divorced home, that does not have to be your future. It doesn't. Right? It does, it's not deterministic. It's just a data point saying, generally speaking, what's best for society and culture is when one man and one woman get married and they stay married for their entire lives. That being said, 
one of my, my best friends, closest friends, he comes from uh, a divorced home, and he is now married, and he's got a very healthy marriage, and he is a really, really excellent uh, husband and father, and he works really hard about it because he said, I'm going to be the generation that changes that. Right? And he is. He's the generation that changes that. He's got some scars from his parents getting divorced, but his kids don't, and they won't because he's made a commitment that he will remain married forever to this woman. So that's just a data point saying that the foundational institution of healthy society is marriage. It works if believers are married or non-believers are married. Either way, it creates stability in society. It's really, really, really important. So I want to give you five tips for building healthy marriages. Okay. Just five. There are probably lots more, but I'm going to give you five of them this morning. First is this. Singles, choose wisely. Right? You're not into it yet, so singles, choose wisely. Get input from your friends. You should marry a believer. Duh. Right? Just check that one off. But beyond that, not just someone who believes in Jesus Christ, but someone who is following Jesus Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not marry somebody to rescue them. Please don't. Man, I, I cannot tell you how many times I have counseled with students who are coming together and one is way stronger than the other and trying to rescue the other person. Don't do that because you're going to go through cycles in, in a married life where one has to carry the other. Right? And it's going to go back and forth. And you need to marry somebody that you know is walking so strongly with, with Jesus that when you're weak, they can help you. They're weak, you can help them. Right? Equally yoked. Your vision, your passion for life is that through your careers and through your marriage and through your neighborhood relationships that you are going to together worship God for a lifetime and make disciples of all nations. Right? That's who you're going after. So singles say first is choose wisely. Uh, and if you are dating a, a non-believer right now, then I would encourage you this afternoon break up. I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not smiling. I mean, I'm not smiling, but I'm just okay. I'm serious. I'm serious. Uh, be gentle, be kind, but be quick. Okay? Because the longer you wait and think about it, if your heart's already entangled in it, you will rationalize why you shouldn't do it. So, this afternoon, you've got a job to do. Okay? Those are probably adults who dated non-believers. <laughs> who have been in that moment and said, you know, okay, I'm, I'm glad I got out. Right? It's a wise thing to do. Okay. Second, seek input before you are in the crisis. So many times couples come to me and, man, they are already at the edge of the cliff or actually they're going down. They're falling down. And it's just like, oh, gosh, you know, we probably should have been talking five years ago. Right? Commit to having a great, great marriage. So get input all along the way. Uh, Grab a good book. So, you know, let's read this together. Let's be, make our marriage better than it is. Okay, I've got a couple resources for you real quick here. I forgot. Uh, if you want to come up later, you can just snap some pics of these. Um, if you want to dive deeply into some of the theology of divorce and remarriage, I've got three books. Um, this one by David Instone Brewer, very scholarly. I think this is the best scholarly book available. He wrote a kind of pastoral book. It's got less footnotes. Um, then if your believers agree and disagree on this topic, divorce and remarriage. So here's one, four different evangelical opinions on the topic. Then 
uh, for a person who's married to someone who uh, you're a believer and the person you're married to is not a believer, beloved unbeliever. Uh, one of our members gave this to me and said it was absolutely fantastic. I leafed through it and looked really good. And then uh, love and respect. The Sims just cheered for love and respect because they are starting a class today at 11 o'clock for newlyweds and young marrieds, and they're going to talk about love and respect. So 11 o'clock, you could walk out of here into room 20. Nailed it. All right, room 20, 11 o'clock. If you want to get in with uh, Lance and Rhonda. Lance and Rhonda, stand up real quick. There we go. So if you need to find them and ask questions, there you go. Great way to go. Okay. Um, we also have uh, some marriage ministry opportunities. Reengage meets Tuesday nights. The, gr- the small groups are closed, but you could come to the large group at 7 and just get a sense of you know, whether or not this is for you. Reengage is for folks who are already married and they just want to bring some new life into their marriage. And I know we've had adults say, uh, I don't really want to do that because really, I don't want people to think that we have problems in our marriage, so I don't want to show up to that thing. It's not just for people with problems in their marriage. It's for people who say, I want to make our marriage even better than it is. Or you might say, yeah, we do have problems and we need some input. Just, you can just come in the back door right, and join your group. Have a little humility and say, Gosh, we need to work on this thing, and we want this to be better. And you're going to find people in these groups who have marriages that have gone for 30 years, and they're really doing great. But as one of my missionary friends, every time they come off the field, they say, you know, we, we just go sit down with the counselor because we need a marriage tune-up. And we want to talk about these patterns of conflict that we have and why we keep having them because we want to be better in our marriage. You know, And you'll find folks also who are on the edge of divorce, and they're all mixed together. You have an opportunity there. If you are in crisis, then please come talk to, talk to me, one of the pastors, or uh, one of our elders, and we'll help point you in the next right direction. There are some really good uh, Christian counselors here in town. But my encouragement would be this. Don't wait till you're in that moment of crisis right, to get some help. Uh, also, Family Life Marriage Conference uh, Weekend to Remember. You get half off if you sign up before January 28th. I was just told by one of our staff members, and that is tomorrow. Right, Family Life Conference, uh, Weekend to Remember. Tristan and I did this, I think our first or second year when we were married. It was great. It just, cre- it just stirs up really good conversation. Right? Third, guard your marriage. Guard the inputs in your marriage. If, you, if you're a couple, uh, whether you're, you're dating or you're married and you're hanging out with other couples who uh, are unkind to one another, that's going to bleed off on you at some level. Uh, early, I remember, yeah, it was first year, months. We had first couple of months that we were married. Tristy and I went and had dinner with another couple friend of ours. They were been married a little bit longer. They were good friends, and we were in their house, dinner, and they just, they were just going, Nick, 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 just kind of digging each other, kind of sarcastic, just tick, 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 right? We got back in the car, and I looked in the seat next to me, and my wife was sobbing. Did I say something? <laughs> you know, I'm a brand new husband. I don't know what I did. What's going on? You know, she goes, that's not going to be us. Is it? Uh? I mean, just fear infused her that we would treat one another like that. I said, you know what? It will not because we are committed to having the greatest marriage ever in the history of all of humanity. <laughs> so we made a decision. We didn't hang out with them. We just couldn't. We were just too vulnerable at that point in time. We picked uh, three or four couples 
We really, really, really liked the way that they interacted. So we want our marriage to be like that. So we, those first two years of marriage, we spent a lot of time with them. And when we couldn't spend time with them, we and were with, with some other folks who really weren't as solid in their marriage, we realized, okay, that's a different category. That's ministry. That's ministry. Are we ready for it? Are we geared up? We're going in. That's not going to be us, but we're going to love them. Right? We're going to love them in ministry. But our primary influence needs to be these couples who have really strong marriages. So guard your marriage. Guard the input uh, in your marriage. Fourth, uh, speak kindly. And uh, you know that when you hear, oh yeah, of course. But man, you listen to married couples, and a lot of times they don't speak kindly at all, and you think, there's no way when you were dating that you spoke that way to one another. No, because right, remember back uh, Bobby, age seven, his advice, right? The, what do you do on the first date? You lie, right? <laughs> so you can get a second date. Really, all of dating is deceit. I'm just saying, it's, it's, all, it's all a process of deceit, right? You're putting your best foot forward, right? So if you're dating someone and right now you're dating and they're already sarcastic toward you and not encouraging toward you, you're getting their best. So just realize that's their best. But then there are a lot of folks who they put on their best and then once they're in this safe environment, man, everything comes down and they're not kind, they're not encouraging. And I'm going to tell you, we are all fragile. We all need lots and lots and lots and lots of encouragement. We can't actually handle much criticism in the context of that intimate relationship. We just can't. We're just so fragile. In fact, communication issues are, are that's the number one reason you know, people end up getting divorced. And they say that, that contempt you know, or sarcasm, even your, your spouse speaks and there's even a little rolling of the eye or just a little nick, whatever. So they can, they can diagnose that in the first few weeks of a marriage and tell if that marriage is going to end in divorce because they don't speak kindly. Speak kindly to your spouse. Speak gently to your spouse. Realize your spouse is, is fragile in your hands. Remember, uh, you know, five languages of love, right? Words of encouragement, affirmation, I'm telling you, in marriage, everybody needs that. They may say, well, you know, I like physical touch and do the dishes. I like acts of service, whatever. Everybody needs words that are positive and affirming so that we have the courage to change the things that we know need to change. Speak kindly to one another. Fifth, practice thankfulness. If you have not done so recently, this is your, this is your one application point for today. I want you uh, this afternoon to sit down and write ten things on paper that you are thankful for for your spouse. Ten things you are deeply thankful for for your spouse. Because something got you into this marriage that you're in, right? There was something that attracted you. Write those things down and give those to your spouse. Uh, if you're dating... Do the same thing. Write it out and hand it to that person. If you're not dating, do it for a roommate. Okay, this is not weird. Or this is not weird, right? You got a roommate. You know what? Your roommate needs encouragement too. Encourage. You know, I'm really grateful for this about you. I'm grateful that you uh, always clean up your dishes. I'm grateful you don't eat all my food. I'm grateful, whatever. You know, I mean, I'm just saying, write, write it out, encourage, put it in paper. They may say, oh, I don't need all those words of affirmation. I don't like notes. It, it breathes life into everyone's soul. And so it may be, you know, maybe your spouse is not here with you today. Well, you know what? You can just go home. You don't even have to reference that I said this. It's just your idea. I just thought this is a good idea because I love you so much, right? And you write them all out, right? Or if your spouse is sitting here, then you say, you know, Brian always gives application points and I'm committed to every week that I'm going to apply those to my life. And so, you know, I mean, just whatever it takes, 
but, but own this moment to breathe some fresh life uh, into your marriage. And so, sum up. If you, if you are divorced, it's not your final word. It's not the final word in your life. Your life can be full and rich, whether you remarry or you don't remarry. God can use you in powerful ways in people's lives. Uh, it may be that there is some collateral damage from your divorce that you need to either go and ask forgiveness or you need to grant forgiveness to someone. But this is not the final word. If you're single, pray for contentment. I understand. I've been there. For many years, pray that God would make you content and that you take advantage of these years that you have when you're single. I got to do a lot of really amazing things while I was single. And I look back and say, God, thank you for giving me that time. Take advantage of that time. If you're married, express to your spouse how grateful you are and why you're grateful. And speak those words of life to one another. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would learn to love one another well. Pray, Father, that we would value marriage. I pray that our marriages here in this place would demonstrate Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for those who have been divorced, that their divorces and the relationships subsequently would demonstrate Jesus Christ and his ability to bring forgiveness and healing and some level of reconciliation, even when things are broken. For those who are single and waiting, Father, give us patience, contentment, in all that you provide. And remind us, Father, that your grace is sufficient for our lives. We need you.